God speaks to us through his word in Revelation 21, 1 through 6, and 22, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, guys. You doing okay? All right. I trust, I trust that you're doing okay uh, this morning. Hey, it's good to be here. And um, Ben, thank you for the kind greeting this morning, but it's, it's my privilege to be here. If you've got a Bible, open up to Revelation 21 and 22, the passage that was just read. Um, we've been in this journey <clears throat> the last few weeks. We've called Advent. Uh, we don't call it Advent. I guess the church since the beginning has called it Advent, a season of longing and waiting. It comes from a Latin word that you may know. Adventus simply means arrival, uh, coming, coming of God into the world. And so uh, we've been journeying through this season, and we're wrapping it up today, uh, a week away from Christmas. And um, cat's out of the bag with a reading like that from Scripture. We're, we're preaching on heaven today. And so if there were ever a Sunday to kind of get rallied up and fired up in the, in the word of God being preached, this would be a moment to go, hey, this is the great exhale. This is the great exhale of the Bible. And we get to join together and understand where, the, where all of history is headed and, and God's, God's great ending to things. So um, would you please pray for me? And I'll pray for you. And uh, we'll get to work and see how God would shape us. Amen. <clears throat> Father, I pray today that your intended effect of giving us truth like this um, would shape us, would move us, would spike us up to attention. The places where you would intend for us to let our shoulders down, to let our hearts breathe again, to let our faith be rekindled, to redeem our imagination, God, to, to, to stand in awe of you again, where we've grown calloused and and God, sadly too familiar, would we, would we be drawn to wonder again? Thank you for everything you intend to work in us and shape in us by your scriptures, but particularly these scriptures this morning. And we ask that you would have your full effect um, in us. And we, we pray this in the name of Jesus and everyone's prayed and said, amen. Amen. 
Well, Christmas is an interesting time of year, isn't it? Uh, it's an interesting time of year because it has, it has its own way of, of doing things inside of us and doing things to us. Maybe if you're the kind of person who said uh, three weeks ago, I can't believe it's already that time of year, but by the time it gets a week out from Christmas where we are, you're kind of like, oh, we're there, right? We're there, and things start to kind of fire off in you, and, and you start to, maybe if you're like me, I, I think I'm kind of like everybody, we, we reach for different things, nostalgia, traditions, we reach for sentimentality to sort of spark something in us for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's pain that you experience this time of year, and so you want to reach for something to comfort and to cover over the pain. Maybe it's that you have bright and happy memories, and you want to reach for those things to try to recreate some of those. A couple of years ago, my wife and I were going through a box of pictures, and I saw a picture of me from Christmas 1987. So four-year-old me uh, getting a gift, and... Uh, the Sonic Ranger headset walkie-talkies were what I got that year, right? Walkie-talkie is too much to hold in your hand. You need to have it on your head as a headset, right? Hands-free walkie-talkies. And it lit up my life, apparently, right? Like, I mean, has anyone ever been excited about headset walkie-talkies before? As Christian 1987, Chad Kenser, right? And I thought when I saw this picture a little while ago that, hey, that's, that's what all of us want. <laughs> like that moment. That's what we're trying to reach for. We're trying to recreate that. We're trying to capture that. We're trying to put that in a bottle and open that up again every year so that we can have a moment like that. We're willing to buy, purchase moments like that. And often to no avail, right? We put a pressure on Christmas that's quite interesting. We put a pressure on Christmas to whatever has felt incomplete through the year to bring completion to us. That's where nostalgia and traditions and all of that comes from. And often we don't, get it like we want to get it. But that's where we're sort of brought into the proposition, the, the claim of what we've been doing with Advent. What Advent says to us in the midst of all of our reaching and grasping is only a breakthrough from God will do. It's not that my Christmas experience when I was four years old or any Christmas experience that's been amazing is wrong or bad. It's, it's quite good. It's what's wonderful. Those are memories that are worth having. But they're also memories that are a shadow compared to where the substance really is. What Advent is saying is that only, only a breakthrough from God will do. And so isn't it fitting that this comes at the end of our calendar year, the end of our calendar year, but actually the beginning of the church calendar. The church calendar starts with you and I bringing nothing to the table but desperation. Nothing to the table but desperation. It's sort of a metaphor for coming to the end of ourselves, that whatever your year has been like, whatever 2022 has been like, Advent is meant to bring you to the end of yourself and be a corrective, a reset, a splint, like on a broken finger to straighten what's bent and where you're looking for resolve or comfort. What we don't need is more of ourself. We don't need more of the fruit of our efforts. What you and I need is a breakthrough from God. Like that's, that's what we need. We need Advent. We need God to break in. We need God to deal with us. We need God to come to bear. Karl Barth, an old German theologian, would say that Advent is really the only season the church has. Everything is just Advent, waiting for God to break in. And so what we've been doing in this Advent series is standing on our side of the first Advent, the birth of Christ, looking back on it like the Old Testament saints would have looked to it. We look back on it, but we also, like them, stand in our moment looking forward to his second Advent. And we say with them in the Psalms, how long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? We, we want that breakthrough that only you can bring. 
And so what we've been doing is looking at themes of the return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment has been talked about last week, and today is the capstone of what we've been doing through this season. Today we get to talk about the great exhale of the Bible, the great anticipation of all of true Christian faith, the thing that you and I are longing for, even sometimes when we don't know we're longing for it. Today we get to talk about the new heaven and the new earth. And so there's three things I want you to see from Scripture today about it. And the first is this, that there's coming a great reunion. A great reunion. Jump in with me from chapter 21, verses 1 to 3. Scripture says this. Then I saw a new heaven. This is the, this is the revelation that John the Apostle gets. A new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And so the book of Revelation closes with this Vision of final rest. The last book of scripture closes with this vision of final rest. Where all of history is headed and where God himself will get the final word. And it's amazing to think about what John is writing here when you consider to, to whom he was writing his original audience of the book of Revelation. His original audience was a, was a group of suffering Christians. You might think that your job day in and day out feels like being thrown to the lions. That's literally what was happening to these early Christians. They were literally being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum, persecuted simply for naming Jesus as Lord. And so this group of suffering Christians, John gives this revelation. It was the revelation that God wanted them to have of where things were headed. You're enduring this now. I'm with you now. But it won't always be this way. It won't always look like suffering as if to say, if you can get this, if you can see where the story is headed, if you can see where the arc of history is bending, then you can endure now. You can endure now because God will get the last word. Notice the language of the passage. There's a new heaven and a new earth. So the biblical vision of heaven is of a new creation. It's something quite physical and solid. So the biblical understanding of heaven is not this place where we have a never-ending choir practice of just unending praise songs. Like That's not the biblical vision of heaven. It's a place bustling with energy and life and enterprise. It's not a place where we're just glorified floating spirits or angelic you know, beings playing harps. Like that's, that's not the biblical understanding of heaven. It's of an entirely renewed creation, something quite physical and solid. We'll have perfected bodies. Think about the resurrected Jesus in his glorified and perfected body. It was a physical body that even the disciples after the resurrection were able to touch him and to hug him. And so heaven is not some place, maybe a correction to an old hymn, it's not some place that we'll fly away to, but someday Jesus actually brings this with him and he brings it to us on the great day. Look at verse two. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, coming down from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The idea here is for us to know that God isn't opposed to the world. After all, he created this place. You think back from the very beginning, he created the world. and In fact, he saw it as good, very good even. So good as if he wanted to rest on the seventh day to enjoy his creation. 
He made it. He called it good. He's joined us in the world once already in the Lord Jesus. And he's coming back, not just to join us, but to restore this whole thing. To set everything back to right. In the entire created order, he's going to bring a new creation for his people. Where it won't just be called good, it'll be called perfect. It'll be called perfect on that day. And so sometimes you might hear someone talk about, sometimes you might hear a Christian talk about the world as though it doesn't matter. And they'll say, oh, it doesn't matter. It'll all burn one day. You ever heard of that? And the Bible does talk about a burning on the great day. But it's not a burning in the sense of destruction. It's a burning in the sense of a refiner's fire so that all that is impure is melted away and what's left is the brilliance of what it was intended to be. The real thing. And so a new creation is coming, but that's not the beauty of what's happening on the great day. Notice verse 3. The beauty of what makes heaven heaven isn't just the new creation restored order. It's what's happening in verse 3 where scripture tells us The dwelling place of God is with man. The dwelling place of God is with man. This is the great reunion. God's resolve to the brokenness of the world is to bring about a complete and final redemption to actually restore us back to something very old, the way it was in the garden. You remember life back there as we're told it with Adam and Eve. The uninterrupted presence of God. Like they, would, they didn't have to seek the presence of God. They didn't have to try to center themselves in prayer and sort of attune themselves to the reality of God. They were just sort of in it. It says they walked with God in the cool of the day, living in his presence uninterrupted, without fear, without shame, without anything to hide, totally at peace to enjoy God and his world forever. This is the great expectation. The dwelling place of God is with man. That is the great expectation and hope of the Bible since Genesis 3. You remember Genesis 3, when sin enters the world, we wrecked things. I read an author recently that described sin as the human propensity to screw things up. We wrecked things. We broke fellowship with God. We broke fellowship with each other. We broke fellowship with creations we were meant to have it. And then hidden inside of all the curses for sin God gave a promise that it won't always be that way. It won't always be that way. There's a great reunion coming, and the great reunion isn't the result of your efforts to get back to God, but notice how it always was with the gospel. It's God's work. It's God's effort to come toward you. He says, and I don't want you to miss this line. If you hear nothing else today, let this grab and renew your imagination of faith. The dwelling place of God is with man that stun you? This text tells us, even in verse 3, that this is being declared, this is being pronounced, proclaimed with a loud voice coming from the throne of God. Presumably an angelic being that's announcing the will and the heart of God the Father. And this is what God has him announce, that the dwelling place of God is with man. This is not a library voice and a whisper. This is a shout. You think about that, like God could have had his angelic messenger say anything about his dwelling place. He could have said the dwelling place is anywhere. He could have told us it's in a press box watching over you and so you'll be safe because God's there watching over you. He says, no, 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 no. The dwelling place of God isn't in a press box watching over his people. It's in the midst. It's with his people. I point this out, right, because I believe so much of the reason for people who are opposed to God 
So much of the reason for many who are opposed to God is that they believe that God is actually opposed to them or he doesn't care about their situation. And so instead of having to deal with a harder reality of God being opposed to them, they sort of out of a defensive detachment just get out in front of it and say, well, before I have to deal with God being opposed to me, I'll just be opposed to him. But this one line, this one line that the angelic being is shouting from the throne of God about his dwelling place knocks down the whole notion that God is opposed to people. He couldn't possibly be more for you. He couldn't possibly be more for you. We broke fellowship with him after all. It's not as though he's opposed to us. We've been opposed to him. We broke fellowship with him. We rejected him. He's the offended party. He's the one on the other end of the deal. And yet he's the one who initiates the reunion with us. He's not opposed. And so that's the reason the dwelling place of God is with man is the reason that Jesus came the first time. The first advent has everything to do with the coming promise of Revelation 21 verse 3. The dwelling place of God is with man. Jesus came to eradicate and put away every obstacle that would keep us from this desire in the heart of the Father. So when you think about the coming of Jesus, why did he come? Don't hijack his life, his death, and his resurrection for another purpose. He didn't come to give you your best life, although he'll affect your life. He didn't come so that your marriage and family would be perfect and Instagrammable, although he'll affect your marriage and family. He didn't come so that your bank account would swell and have prosperity, although He'll change the way you see money. Your happiness in this world wasn't the purpose of his coming. He even was honest enough to tell us that in this world you'll have troubles, right? The reason for the first coming of Jesus, his perfect life, his atoning death, his rising was for the glory of the Father and to make a way for our eternal happiness in his presence forever. That's why he came. So there's this verse in the Psalms that's like if you star or underline or like put stickers around verses in the scriptures, like I would say Psalm 1611 ought to be one of those verses. And because of this reality of the dwelling place of God with man, the reason that Jesus came, it, Psalm 1611 speaks to that and it's more than just a nice thought. Psalm 1611 is the deepest reality in the universe. Psalm 1611 says that in the presence of God is the fullness of joy. It's the fullness of joy. And there are pleasures forever at his right hand. So, so God is not opposed to joy. He's not opposed to pleasure. God is the fountainhead of all joy. Joy and pleasure are God's idea. He's the fountainhead of all of that stuff. Anything that is a glimmer of what's joyous and pleasurable is a shadow of the substance that is in the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune community. He's the fountainhead of those things. And so when scripture comes to us to say that the dwelling place of God would be with man, it's saying that at the great reunion, there is the fullness of joy and pleasures forever. And so we say with the Old Testament saints, that sounds pretty good. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? But it's not just there's a great reunion. The second thing I want you to see is the new heavens and new earth are about a great elimination. 
the great reunion and the great elimination. Pick up with me in verse four. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Listen to the elimination of things. There's the elimination of tears. There's the elimination of death. Neither shall be mourning or crying or pain anymore. The former things have passed away. Verse 5 says, and he who is seated on the throne. So now it's not an angelic voice that's beaming forward, behold, and saying something at his will. It's now God saying, hey, I got this one. They need to hear my voice. I'm saying this one. And God himself says, behold, I'm making all things new. And he says, write this down as if to say, I know you'll second guess this someday. For these words are trustworthy and true. And chapter 22 goes on to say that there's this river of life running through the center of the holy city with a tree of life that brings healing for the nations. And it goes on to say because of that, not only is there no crying or pain or death or mourning, but it also says in chapter 22, the curses of sin are gone. They're gone. So I want you to do something with me for a second. I want you to, and close your eyes if you need to, you don't have to, I'm just inviting, think about this with me. Imagine life without sin and evil in the world. Say, okay, what does that mean? There's no more lust, no more even temptation. There's no anxiety, there's no depression. Insecurity is gone. Sickness and cancer are gone. Jealousy and anger eliminated. There's no more betrayal or abandonment. Abuse, done. Fatherlessness, racism, gossip, doubts, Fear, the list could keep going. I want you to imagine life without that one nagging sin that keeps sort of hovering over you like a rain cloud that drenches you with accusations against your security in Jesus. I want you to imagine life that's gone, gone. Never to threaten you again. If you're here and you're, maybe you're not a Christian, you say, that sounds pretty amazing. But for the Christian, that's not imagination. I would actually argue that we probably spend too little time imagining that like we ought. That's not your imagination, Christian. That is a certain coming reality. The day, hey, listen, there's coming a day when Blake laid us in, re, in confession and repentance. There's coming a day when we won't need to confess or repent of anything anymore. Repentance is done. Preaching is done. There won't need to be a, there won't be a point of a sermon because the whole point of a sermon is standing right in front of you. You'll just sort of look at him. Preaching is done. The means of grace are done. A day and days forever after when there'll be no more hospital visits, no more nursing homes or orphanages, when graves will be emptied and the blood of martyrs will be vindicated. The coming of this moment, the coming of the great elimination is the triumph of everything that was started those first, that first night when those first cries from Bethlehem filled the night. When Jesus let out those cries from that Bethlehem stable, that was the beginning, that was the inauguration that the day of elimination was coming. 
That's what he started on that night. Life increasing and never fading. Now think about this with me. We've just heard an angel tell us the dwelling place of God is with man. And God steps in to say, no, 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 it's not just I'm here. It's I'm eliminating everything that's opposed to me and my kingdom. And if that wasn't good enough, I want to try to make those, that good news even better. He said, that day sounds pretty good. And it is. And as desirable as an experience of a day like that is, before there was a desire in your heart for a day like that, catch this with me. Before there was ever a desire in your heart for a day like that, the desire to provide all of that was in God's heart first for you. Consider the love. Like he desires this day. This is like, you're not just imagining a day that would be nice to have. You're imagining something that's a reality in God to provide for you that was in his idea first. This is why he sent his son into the world. Like this is why his son laid down his life. This is why his son shed his blood. This is why his son shed his blood so that there's a reckoning coming for sin. We know that. We need that. That's why Ben talked about judgment last week. There is a coming judgment. That's actually good news. But for the Christian, judgment has already happened for you. It happened on the head of Christ. There's a reckoning coming for sin. But God was so desirous for you to have this day that the great elimination would happen, that he sent his son to shed his blood so that the reckoning for sin wouldn't be an obstacle for you experiencing this day. He eliminated even the obstacle that would keep you from this day in his son. And not just his death, it's why God raised him from the dead. How do I know this day will come? Because he's not dead, he's ruling, reigning, has promised a return, and is saying, hey, 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 angelic being, I got this one. I'm making all things new. Let Jesus say it, John chapter six. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Notice this next line. And whoever... No partiality there. This is a big whoever, a wide net whoever, like a whoever, whoever. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So I have come down from heaven to do something, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay, Jesus, what's that will? Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. What's the heart of God the Father? It is this, that everyone who looks on the Son, everyone who turns an eye and a faith and a heart to Jesus and believes in him, they should have eternal life and he will raise it up on the last day. This is Jesus himself saying what I've been trying to explain to you. He's saying, I will not lose you. This world is ugly and it's hard and it's busted by sin and it's busted by our propensity to screw things up, but you will not be lost in your race. I will not lose you. I will get you home. And the great day is a day that I desire for you to be with me where I am. It's not just your desire to have a day like that. It's my desire to give you a day like that so that we can share in it together. That's amazing. Jesus is saying by that, I started this and I'll complete it. I'll complete it. I will not lose you. I'll get you home. The great day is a day of a great reunion. It's a day of great elimination of sorrow, sin, and death. But there's one more thing I want you to see today. 
It's also a day of great sight. I want you to look at with me at the first part of Revelation 22 in verse 4. This is amazing. They will see his face. They will see his face. They will see his face. This is, listen, this is the prize, right? Like, all, what did Moses want to see as he was leading the Israelites out of Egypt? He was saying, can you show me your face? And because of his sinfulness, God said, you can't handle it. All through the Psalms, they're saying over and over again, God, we seek your face. God, we seek your face. On the great day, the great capstone, the line, the anticipation, the great exhale, the great like pent up angst of all scripture gets let out. We'll see his face. We'll see his face. God's not giving us the dwelling place of God is with man as though that's an impersonal presence. It's intensely personal with a face. Heaven is not heaven. If, if the day of great elimination sounds wonderful to you and Jesus would not be there, that's not Christian hope. That's idolatry. Heaven is not heaven unless Jesus is there. Like he's the only one who can bring the elimination. The elimination isn't possible if he's not there. But even if we had the elimination and the perfected bodies and the new creation, but he wasn't there, it would just be some place that would end on itself and it would not be heaven. Heaven is heaven because 22 verse 4 is true. We will see his face. This is the great Christian hope. If everything to now has excited you, it should now go over the top. This is Romans 8, chapter 18. Paul's going to say, For I consider that the present sufferings of this present time, the stuff I'm going through now, is not even, it's not even worth comparing. Like, i got to go through this. Well, listen, 80 years of suffering, that's what it is, is nothing to be compared to trillions of years in a new creation with a great reunion and a great elimination and seeing his face. John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we're God's children now. Isn't that amazing? But what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There's a day coming when you won't even need faith anymore because it will be sight. You won't even need faith. <laughs> what, what do I keep saying while I'm preaching? But like, isn't this enough? On the great day, here's what I know. Maybe you're here and you're going, is Jesus worth it? Like that's a regular, that's a regular conflict of the Christian life. The things that you abstain from, the war in your chest against sin that you struggle against, the ways that your, your, your flesh pulls you in different directions with lusts and anxieties and burdens and sorrows. And sometimes you wonder, is Jesus worth it? Is he worth all the fighting? Is he worth all the conflict? Is he worth, is he worth me enduring the mosh pit inside of my chest? Is he worth it? Here's what I can tell you. On the great day, there will be no confusion. He's absolutely worth it. <laughs> you won't, on the great day, you won't be thinking, if I could have just had one more round with that sin, 
If I, could have, if I could have just partaken in that sort of addictive impulse one more time and gotten the last bit of life out of that, but then, no. Any, any effort that you've sacrificed to have more of Jesus, you've peeled your things, you've peeled your hands off of the world to take greater hold of him, on the great day, none of those sacrifices will be seen as sacrifices. It will be seen as the only thing, the thing that was most worth doing because he's there. One of my favorite preachers, David Platt, says it this way. This vision will keep you running your race. Do you see Jesus? There he is. Hold him there in the eye of faith. You're getting closer. Keep running. Keep fighting. Keep guarding. Soon you will see him as he is. And then you will see him. His scarred hands. And you'll look into his majestic eyes and his lips will move and he will say, well done. <laughs> and he'll take his healing hands, right? And he'll place a crown on your head. And on that day, you will not regret the fighting or the running or the enduring for his namesake. And so in 1987, I got some Sonic Rangers at Christmas. And that was awesome. But I can tell you with almost 100% accuracy, those things didn't make it to February 1988. Christmas causes us to want to grab at something all the time, but it's grabbing at something that doesn't last. And for that, God steps in and he says, this is Advent because only a breakthrough from God will do, and we know that. Like our, our lives and our experiences in Sonic Rangers give testimony that only God will do. And he says, hey, let me step in and offer you something that only I can offer, that will be with you, that will hold you on the darkest day, and there will be a testimony of even a better day on the brightest day. Behold, he says, I'm making all things new. This is the great hope of true Christian faith. Let's pray together.